Hello, my name is Eric Sieben, and I am one of the pastors at the Village Church. The following podcast is a ministry of the Village Church. We hope that it inspires you, that it draws you closer to Jesus, and it opens your eyes to the possibilities of living in the kingdom. Enjoy, and God bless. Let's move around a little bit. Wake up a little bit. It's nice and mellow in here right now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for um, all of these wonderful people. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we read your word, that you would give us hearts to receive you, um, that as we talk about it afterwards, that you would give us grace and compassion for one another. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. So we are in a series on the books of the Bible. Um, I've gotten this question a lot. So we're doing Mark this week. We're doing Luke next week. And then we're done for the year. We're not doing John until next year. So you're going to have to wait for John. Sorry. Uh, But today we're looking at the book of Mark. Um, And uh, last week, I'm Mark, by the way. Mark on Mark. I did, yeah. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to tell you, Ron. I'm 2,000 years old. (laughs) Anyway. uh, Yeah, so last week, Eric and Sue got up here and they talked about Matthew. And they had this awesome chart up that had like prologue and it's, it had five sections and each section had this and that and they walked through the whole thing and then it had an epilogue and it was awesome and organized um, and good for them. It was great. But that is, that is not the book of Mark. <laughs> it breaks down much simpler um, and we're going to look at that. So a few things first, the Gospel of Mark, a little context. So first of all, the author of Mark um, is a Greek-speaking Jew, and that's about all we know. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. Um, He's probably familiar with Latin. There's a lot of Latinisms in the book of Mark. Um, Traditionally, we attribute the book of Mark to John Mark, and John Mark first makes his appearance by name. Um, in Acts chapter 12, where Peter is in prison, and he gets out of prison, and he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is called Mark. So, John Mark. Um, John Mark went around with Peter. Oh, yeah, and by the way, they don't believe that it's Peter at the door. He goes, and he's like, let me in, and they're like, it's not Peter. He's in prison. Anyway, you can read about that in Acts chapter 12. So, John Mark goes around with Paul and Barnabas, um, he was friends with Peter in Jerusalem, um, and maybe it's John Mark, maybe it's not, um, we're not totally sure, um, but that's, the, that's church tradition, um, and it really, because he was friends with Peter, this is the other piece of this, that I'll, I'll get there, uh, because he's friends with Peter, um, a lot of the book of Mark is stories. And those stories are often um, interpreted as the stories that Peter told about Jesus. And so John Mark um, was sort of Peter's scribe in writing down his stories about Jesus. That's church tradition. All we really know is it's a Greek-speaking Jew. All right, audience. So uh, almost certainly the audience of this book, the people it's written to, are non-Jewish people, um, maybe Romans, but definitely people who are under Roman rule. 
which is not saying a lot um, at the time. Um, but part of the reason we know this is because uh, Mark translates um, Aramaic phrases. Aramaic was a, a local um, language among the Jews. Um, so he translates Aramaic phrases. So it'll say, um, and Jesus said, and then I'll have something in Aramaic. And then it says, and then in parentheses, it'll say, which means, and then it'll tell you what it means. Um, it also has, Mark has a lot of explanations of laws and customs, of Jewish laws and customs. So the people he's writing to are not familiar um, with the laws and customs of the Jewish people. So the audience is almost certainly non-Jewish people, probably at least under Roman rule, which is significant, and we'll get to that. Time frame. It's written sometime in, probably in the 60s, maybe as early as 50 A.D., um, as late as 70 A.D., and it's the earliest gospel written. It's the earliest gospel written. Matthew and Luke both draw heavily from the book of Mark. In fact, the book of Mark has only 31 unique verses um, as compared to the other gospels. It only has 31 unique verses. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to read those 31 unique verses, and then we're going to go because Eric and Ma Michael next week, they'll cover it all. It's great. No. Yeah, I mean, you know. So there's a parable. There's a couple healings. There's a teaching on salt. Um, and then there's a story in chapter 14 about the young man in the garden. Um, there's in, in the book of Mark, Jesus is about to be arrested, and there's a young man, um, and he wear, is wearing only a robe. And so he's following Jesus, and they say, let's arrest him too. And they grab him, and he runs away. He gets out of his robe. He runs away naked. All right? That story is only in Mark. And often people think that that is the writer of Mark putting himself in the story, remembering something that he was there for. I remember. I was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I only had my tunic that night for some reason, and they grabbed me, and I ran away, and I was naked. That's the thought. I don't know. But anyway, John Mark, the guy running away naked, those are some, some thoughts. Anyway, all right, let's move on. That's our context. All right, keywords. Okay, so these are not necessarily keywords in, in the book of Mark, um, but as I read through the book of Mark this week, which I did like three or four times, um, these are words that stuck out, really stuck out to me. So the first one is immediately. Immediately. Mark uses the word immediately all the time. There is always something happening in the book of Mark. Immediately. They go from this place to that place to this place to that place. And Jesus says, uh, uh, immediately said, uh, get up and walk. Or immediately said, we should go off to this place. There's something always happening. They're always bouncing around. They go from this city to that city, and then immediately they left there and went here. The sense that you get in the book of Mark is that there's something happening. There's something happening. We're going somewhere. There's, there's a direction we're going, and it's, it's happening quickly in the book of Mark. Immediately they go from this place to that place. Second word here is follow. Um, so there's a lot of, there's some different contexts for this word, um, but it's a very frequent word 
in the book of Mark. Um, follow. So the disciples, when Jesus calls his disciples, he says, come, follow me. So they go and they follow Jesus. Uh, the crowd, the crowd is always following Jesus. They're always around. In fact, there's one part where they come to the edge of the lake and they're like, let's go off. Jesus is like, I'm, we're, we're going to go off to a solitary place. I'm going to teach you some things. So they get in the boat and they leave and the people see them leave and they look and they're like, okay, so if they're going that way, then okay, let's go. I know where they're going. And they follow them around the lake and meet them the other side before they get there. And by the time they get there, there's already a crowd. People are following Jesus everywhere. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law also follow Jesus. They follow Jesus around and they ask him questions and they think about what he's talking about and they try to trap him and stuff. And we'll get to some of that too. The Pharisees follow Jesus. And then Jesus also invites people to follow him, not just the disciples, um, but in the story of the rich young ruler. So the rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the, the law. He says, I've done all these things. He says, one more thing, sell everything you have and come follow me. And the rich young ruler goes away sad. Jesus invites people to follow him. This third one uh, is the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is all over the book of Mark. Last week, Eric and Sue talked about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, um, which they kind of mean similar things. And if you want to know more about that, go back and listen to Eric and Sue's sermon on, um, on Matthew. Jesus, uh, Mark, in, in this book, is concerned with the kingdom of God. And Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. There's an urgency. In fact, in the passage that Tritia read, right at the beginning of the book, the first words that Jesus says in the book of Mark are, uh, repent for the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near in the book of Mark. This last one is the son of man. Son of man comes up all the time in Mark. And here's what you need to know is that when Jesus says the son of man, he's referring to himself. All right. This is a title that Jesus takes on. And almost always, basically every time he says it, he's referring also to something about the prophets. So he says, the Son of Man must suffer. And we'll get to that, but the Son of Man must suffer. He's referring back to Isaiah 53 and the prophecies about the suffering servant. So we'll get to that. All right. So a breakdown. A breakdown of the Gospel of Mark. Um, so I've listed it in three sections. Um, you could, if you wanted to, you could have a prologue, which would be basically what Tritia read in chapter 1, and then you could have an epilogue, which would basically be um, chapter 16, which is the resurrection. If you wanted to have a prologue and, and an epilogue, that's where you would put them. But I've broken them down into three sections, ministry, suffering servant, and the last week. Um, and these are my titles. You won't find that in the Bible. But these are my titles. These are the things, these are the way that we're going to talk about these sections.
All right, so the first section, ministry. So chapter 1 through chapter 8, uh, 26, midway through chapter 8, um, is the bulk of Jesus' ministry um, in the book of Mark. Jesus goes about, he does a bunch of stuff. And you'll notice very early on in chapter 1 even, um, that Jesus is, is uh, there's people coming around Jesus in particular ways. So really early on, he's casting out evil spirits. So in, in chapter 1, it says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek, and the people were amazed. So this happens over and over again. Jesus encounters someone with an evil spirit, and the evil spirit proclaims, I know you. You are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of God. What do you want with me? This happens over and over and over. These evil spirits are proclaiming what is true about Jesus. They're saying, I know you. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, "Eh, stop it. Stop that. Be quiet. That's kind of odd. All right. I mean, second thing, second thing he talks about. Second thing that happens, second thing that happens a lot in this section um, is Jesus goes around healing the sick. So he goes around healing the sick. You've got this in, uh, in chapter one also. Chapter one, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So Jesus heals the man with leprosy, and he says, Now, don't tell anyone I did this. Which, again, is really odd. This is Jesus' ministry. I got to tell you, if, this, if it was the beginning of my ministry and I was looking to plant a church and I met with a guy like at, at a coffee shop and I was like, hey, you should believe in Jesus. And they said, hey, I believe in Jesus. And I was like, great. And we prayed together and we left the coffee shop and I was like, all right, now don't go tell anyone. That would be weird. <laughs> Yeah, that would be weird. But here's the thing. This is the first thing that starts to happen with Jesus' ministry. Is he starts to get real crowded. People start coming from everywhere. So early on in his ministry when he's saying, don't tell anyone. 
Be quiet. Come out of him. Don't tell anyone I did this. And the people are just like, Jesus healed me. I'm going to go tell everybody. And all it, they're, they're, it becomes hard for Jesus to do his ministry. Part of the reason in the book of Mark, he's bouncing around all over the place. He's going immediately here and immediately there is because there's always people around him. There's always a press of people. In fact, at one point, um, he tells his disciples, put the boat out into the water. And then he goes out and he stands in the water, stands in the boat to preach from the boat so that there aren't people like crowding around him. The third thing that's happening in this book, in this, uh, in this initial section, in the, in the ministry piece, um, is he's interacting a lot with the Pharisees. Um, he's interacting with the Pharisees. And this comes in a, a few different forms. I originally put arguing, but he's not really arguing with the Pharisees because he's just saying, hey, this is true. And, he's th- and then I put, well, he's, he's answering their questions, but then I was like, well, he's, he's actually not always en- answering their questions. He's seeing their heart and responding to it. But he's interacting with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees really don't like him. In chapter 3, right at the beginning of chapter 3, it says, Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. All right. I preached on this passage at the beginning of the year in our Encounters with Jesus um, series. And so I'm going to see if you guys can still remember the answers to these questions, okay? Everyone ready? Here we go. Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? All right. To save a life or to kill? Yeah, to save a life. So why did the Pharisees remain silent? The answer is obvious. Why are they silent? What's happening here is that they've got all these rules and traditions. They've got all these things that aren't actually part of the law. It's just kind of this separate stuff that tells them how to live out the law. And so if they have to rest on the Sabbath, well, okay, we got to rest on the Sabbath. Okay, but my donkey needs to go drink water and all this stuff. So what's, what constitutes work on the Sabbath? And so one of the questions was, well, can you heal on the Sabbath? And at the time, they had decided, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus says, what is, what's lawful to do good or to do evil, he's specifically going after their traditions. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The pressure builds. Jesus' ministry is a pressure cooker. He's going out, and he's casting out demons. He's going out, and he's healing people. 
he's teaching, he's interacting with the Pharisees in a way that particularly goes after them, and they want to kill him from very early on in his ministry. They want to get rid of him. This whole section is a pressure cooker. And meanwhile, in the midst of all this, they're going from this place to that place to this place to that place. And the whole time, the reason they're bouncing around is what Jesus really wants to do is teach his disciples. He wants to train his disciples. So in the midst of all this, the people pressing around, um, the signs of the Messiah, the, the Pharisees coming and being angry at him and plotting to kill him. In the midst of all this, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. In chapter 4, there's a whole uh, series of, of teachings that Jesus offers about the kingdom of God. They're all parables. I mean, you can go read them in chapter 4. But right, at the, right towards the end of that little section, in chapter 4, verse 33, it says, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say any to, anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus, in his ministry, wanted to make sure that his disciples knew what was going on. He wanted to make sure that his disciples knew what was going on. He was teaching them, training them, talking to them. He was giving parables to the people and then coming back with them and and explaining the parables, explaining his teachings. Eventually, he gets to the point where he sends the disciples out to go out and do the work themselves. And they go out and they cast out demons and heal people. Um, And while they're out, Mark puts this little story in the middle about John the Baptist being beheaded. John the Baptist is beheaded. Um and you can read about that, involves Herod and divorce, which is in chapter 10. We'll get to that. But then the disciples come back, and you see the disciples stepping into Jesus' ministry more. And he feeds and he feeds people. He feeds 4,000, he feeds 5,000, and the disciples are helping out and being part of all that, and they're having conversations about how to do things. And that's, that brings us basically to chapter 8. Um, so up until this point, everything is building. We're going from here to there to here to there. The, there's the crowds crying around. There's the Pharisees wanting to kill him. The disciples are learning from him and going out and trying to join in his ministry. And then we come to chapter 8. In the middle of chapter 8, right in the middle of chapter 8, there is a, a major shift in the way Jesus speaks with his disciples, in the way Jesus is talking in the book of Mark. So, suffering servant. This is the middle of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10. Hang on. What are we talking about? We'll get to that. So, in the middle of chapter 8, Jesus goes to his disciples. It says, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On their way, he asked them, who do people say I am? 
They replied, some say John the Baptist. Well, that doesn't really make sense. Some say Elijah. Elijah was the person who was to proclaim the Messiah that, out of uh, Malachi. We know that's John the Baptist. So some say Elijah. Uh, still others, one of the prophets. So, you know, you're a prophet. But who do you, what, but what do you, what about you? But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. See, at this moment in Jesus' ministry, the disciples grab on to something. Peter has grabbed on to a truth. He's understood something about Jesus. He's seen everything that's happening, the pressure building, the people around him, the things that Jesus is doing, the things that he's teaching about, and he sees it all, and Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the king. You are the Messiah, the one who is to come to sit on David's throne to save Israel. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, yeah. There's, there's, there's this truth there. He's grabbed on to something. He understands something about Jesus. And yet, in the very next verse, if we read on, so Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. He still says, don't tell anybody about this. He says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Hang on, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the king? The Christ? He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside. Peter, who just grabbed on to the truth, just understood a piece of who Jesus is. Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You're the Christ. You're the king. What are you talking about? You're going to go suffer and, and, and die. And this isn't, that's not, I just said you're the Christ and now you're telling me you're going to die. That doesn't make any sense. And this is where Jesus begins um, to talk about two things. First, he begins to talk about uh, his own suffering. So he begins to speak more plainly with them about what is going to happen in Jerusalem, what is going to happen to him that he is going to suffer and die and in three days rise again. And the other thing is he begins to teach them about a little bit bit more about the kingdom of God, about being servants in the kingdom of God. In chapter 9, verse 33, there's this little story that kind of cracks me up sometimes. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because they had, been, they had argued about who was the greatest. Just great. sitting down jesus called the 12 and said if anyone wants to be first he must be the very last and the servant of all he took a little child and had him stand among them taking him in his arms he said to them 
Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. There is a complete, as soon as Peter grabs on to the truth of who Jesus is, a piece of the truth, there is a complete tonal shift in what Jesus is talking about with his disciples. He goes from parables and teaching the crowds and healing people to suddenly talking to his disciples about what's going to happen and how can you serve the little ones? How can you serve the children? If you want to be first, you must be last. We move on in this section, um, and there's a section about divorce. Um, If you go read the section about divorce, keep in mind that it is a, that Pharisees come and ask Jesus about divorce, and it is a politically charged question. A very, very politically charged question. Because remember, Herod had, Herod had divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, a move which actually ended up starting a war and also resulted in John the Baptist dying. So when they come and they ask him about divorce, no, thank you, stop that. When they, come, <laughs> when they come to ask him about divorce, just keep in mind that it is a, a politically charged statement. So, all right, let's move on. We have the rich young, rich young ruler comes in there, what we talked about earlier. And then right at the end of this section, Jesus predicts his death again. And here's what happens. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who, were fo- who followed were afraid. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. Peter has said, you are the Christ. You are the King, the Messiah, the person who's come to sit on David's throne. Why are they astonished and afraid? They've taken their first steps towards Jerusalem. If Jesus is the Christ, if he's the king, and they're walking towards Jerusalem, then he's making a declaration. They're going to Jerusalem to do something. They're going to Jerusalem to do something. His followers are all following him, and they're afraid. Because why? Don't don't miss this. The people who are following Jesus are astonished that he's going to Jerusalem. His disciples are astonished. The people are afraid because they know, they have an idea of who Jesus is and why they're going to Jerusalem. And when a king comes into a capital city under Roman rule, the Romans come down hard. So there's a little bit of of trepidation. There's a little bit of fear as they follow Jesus towards Jerusalem. So we have Jesus' ministry. We have Jesus healing and casting out demons, and the pressure is building all the people around him, and then they they grab onto this one thing. Hear the Christ, and he says, yes, but I am going to die. I am going to suffer and to die, and you must be servants. And then they're walking towards Jerusalem. 
And Jesus says, again, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Let's get into it. then. The last week. The last week of Jesus' life begins in chapter 11 in uh, the triumphal entry. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he finds a colt and he rides into Jerusalem on a colt and people lay down palm branches and they sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a king and everybody knows it. Everybody knows the statement that Jesus is making by riding into Jerusalem on a colt. He is saying, I am the king coming to Jerusalem. And everybody knows that. And then he goes to the temple and he cleans out the temple and he drives out the 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 money changers and the people selling animals. He drives them out and he says, you've made my temple, my, my house of prayer into a house of robbers. And this, again, is another statement that everyone recognizes. The Messiah has the authority to go into the temple and decide how things are going. So you have two very big statements right when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He rides in as a king into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He cleans out the temple. He is making clear statements about who he is and what he is doing. He is the king coming to sit on David's throne. And then the Pharisees come to him. I want to look back really quick at chapter 1 the story that I told earlier, where it says Jesus spoke with authority. He taught with authority, which means he didn't reference the other rabbis. And the people are amazed at his authority and the way he speaks. Here that same word comes up again, that authority. But it's different this time. He's made these statements. They've gone out to go sleep outside the city, and then they come back into Jerusalem. They arrived again in Jerusalem. This is chapter 11, verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to be the king riding in to Jerusalem and the one who's cleaning out the temple? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, 
for anyone, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It's the same as the guy in, in the synagogue with the shriveled hand when they refused to answer Jesus a simple question. And the reason that Jesus doesn't answer is because they've already missed it. They've already missed it. John the Baptist came, and if you say John the Baptist is from God, then he's Elijah, the voice of one calling in the desert, proclaiming the day of the Lord, that the Messiah is going to come. And he baptizes Jesus, says, this is the Messiah. So if they miss that, if they can't answer who John the Baptist is, they're not going to receive, they're not going to receive it if, even if Jesus stood up and said, oh, I received it from my Father in heaven. Uh, he's the one who gives me authority. Well, they, they're not going to listen to him then either. They've already missed it. After that, we have a, a parable parable of the tenants and at the end of the parable you can read the the parable but at the end of the parable it says it's about the pharisees just so you know the chief priests then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them but they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away they come back they come back, and they, they, the, the Pharisees come back, and they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. And then the Sadducees come, and they ask him a dumb question about marriage at the resurrection. And Jesus basically responds and says, that's a dumb question. It's almost exactly what he said. Paraphrased a little bit. And they're coming to him. They're trying to catch him up and trap him. And there's this story right, right after that. So the, the Pharisees come, the Sadducees come, and then it says this teacher of the law came because he listened to Jesus. He heard that Jesus answered well. And so he goes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love your God and love your neighbor. And the man says, you have answered well. It is better to love your God and love your neighbor than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings. And Jesus says, this man is close to the kingdom of God. This man is close to the kingdom of God. He is almost there. He's got it. To love God and to love your neighbor is better than all the sacrifices and all the burnt offerings. Then we have some other things, long teaching about the end of the age. Um, and then we come to the end. We come to uh, chapter 14. And chapter 14 um, is the beginning of, of Passover. And they're sitting around eating a meal. And a woman comes with an alabaster jar of perfume. And he, she breaks it over him and anoints him with oil. And the people around are mad because they're like, well, you could sell that um, for a ton of money and, and help the poor. And Jesus responds and says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? 
She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you will always have with me, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Whatever the go- wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She anoints him for burial. She anoints him for burial. After this, they have the Lord's Supper. They eat uh, the Passover meal with Jesus. Come back to that. And then Jesus predicts uh, Peter's denial. They go, to the, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They pray. Um, the people come and arrest Jesus. Um, the young man runs away naked. And then Peter denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus goes before Pilate. He's condemned to death. He goes and he is crucified. And he dies. And in chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 33, it says, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, there you go, that's the Aramaic being translated into Greek, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. They got that wrong, but that's okay. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to, top to bottom, and when the centurion... The centurion, the Roman centurion. Jesus is on the cross, breathing his last. His disciples have been scattered. John at some point is close enough to have a short conversation with Jesus. The women are kind of nearby, um, but the chief priests are mocking him. His disciples are gone, and there's a Roman centurion there. A Roman centurion, a Roman soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, when he heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening here. The Roman centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. Who is the son of God in the Roman Empire? Caesar. Caesar is the son of God. When you, when you, you know, you got like the titles of nobility and you got the duchess of such and such, such and blah, 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 like that kind of thing. It's got Caesar. Uh, Caesar, Roman emperor, son of God. It's on his money. Son of God. When this Roman centurion says, surely this man was the son of God, 
he is making a declaration. He is saying Jesus is king over the Roman emperor. He is king over the world. This is, I mean, this is, this is blasphemy of the highest order for a Roman soldier. If you consider the audience that this is written to, when you read this book, you're going from here to there and the pressure is building and Jesus is teaching about what he's going to do and his disciples grab onto it. They say, you're the Christ. He walks into Jerusalem declaring, he rides into Jerusalem declaring, I am the king. He goes and he clean, cleans out the temple and then they get to this place. You consider the audience, the people under Roman rule. If they knew nothing about Jesus, they read this book, they get to this moment. This is the moment where they gasp and they go, what? What did he say? He says, Jesus, surely this man was the son of God. And this is what Mark is all about. Is this journey to the cross. This really is is the climax of Mark. Jesus dies and a Roman centurion declares that he is king over the Roman emperor king over Caesar. From there, Jesus is taken down off the cross. He is buried. And then he, three days later, the women... There's a group of women. They're going to anoint his his body. And they go to the tomb. And the stone is rolled away. And there's a man sitting there. A young man dressed in white. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's it. That's how the book ends. There's a little section after that. Um which if you, if you have a Bible, you see a little note that says the earliest manuscripts do not have this section. Um, and it, it, it's not terrible. Jesus said some kind of weird things in it that don't really fit the other things. The, the way it's written doesn't match Mark, so I'm just going to set it aside. Book of Mark ends with the empty tomb. The book of Mark ends with the empty tomb and, and these people wrestling with what they've seen, with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, declaring that he is the king, dying on the cross, and rising again from the dead. What he said he would do over and over and over again. And we're left there with the empty tomb. few last, couple last things. First of all, Jesus, throughout the book of Mark, is compassionate. 
I really wanted to point this out. Jesus is compassionate. Over and over again, the, the, the leper in chapter 1, he says he, saw, he looked at him with compassion. Um, when the crowds come and find him, they go away to the other side of the lake to be alone, and the crowds are there, and it says Jesus had compassion on them. Again and again, Jesus has compassion um, on the people he sees, and he moves towards them. The second thing is Jesus is constantly teaching and training his disciples and the people around him. Jesus, throughout his, his ministry, was teaching his disciples and teach, speaking parables and coming out and, and then teaching his disciples on the side. He was concerned with training them um, for what was to come. But throughout all of this, Jesus is about his kingdom mission. Jesus is about his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Right at the beginning of the book, he, he declares what the entire book is about. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for thank you for what you did. Thank you for the way that you taught, for the compassion that you had. Thank you for um, suffering and dying. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we um, consider all of this, as we sing, as we eat together, um, that you would draw our hearts to you and you alone. That you would draw our eyes to you and to the cross. In your name I pray. Amen.